Well, hey everyone, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. My name is Austin. This is Gospel Simplicity, and I am so glad that you're here today. Today, I have a very special interview for you. It is with William Albrecht and Father Christian Kappas, and they are the co-authors of the book, Mary Among the Evangelists. They take this refreshingly scriptural approach to Mariology and let me tell you, they are encyclopedic in their knowledge, not only of scripture, but of the early fathers and Greek. And it was it was a fun interview. We got really deep into it. And I really enjoyed how we talked a lot about approach to Mariology. And we talked a lot about hermeneutics, which is an area I think who often talk past each other. And I really just think you're going to enjoy this interview. I know I did, and I certainly learned a lot. And I hope you learn th- some things. I hope it challenges you. I hope you just find it interesting. In any case, I want to say a big thank you to my patron subscribers and merch buyers who make these interviews possible. Thank you all so much, especially to my monthly patrons. You guys are the best and you really help make this channel possible. If you're interested in supporting this channel, that is a great way to do it and you can do so using the link down below. In any case, I hope you guys enjoy this interview and here it is. Well, hey guys, what is up? Welcome or welcome back to my channel. I am so glad that you're here. Today, I am joined by William Albrecht and Father Kappas, authors of the book, Mary Among the Evangelists. William Albrecht is a Catholic Christian with a BA in theological studies. He's an international speaker and debater, having participated in over 65 moderated debates. Williams is, William is co-host for Reason and Theology, as well as having guest appeared on EWTN, Virgin Most Powerful Radio, and many other networks. William runs a website dedicated to the early church fathers that includes unique translations, articles, commentaries, and debates on the fathers of the church. You can find out more about him on his website, Patristic Pillars. And Father Kappas is currently academic dean and professor at St. Cyril and Methodius Byzantine Catholic Seminary in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. He is author of numerous books and articles in peer-reviewed publications that touch upon Mariology. Those who wish to study more formally with him or to obtain a master's in theology from his theological school online should feel free to contact him at www.bcs.edu. Thank you both so much for being here. And I just wanted to ask, how did this book come about? William, why don't you start us? Fantastic. Yeah, really, really great question. Um, and it came, came about because I am very heavily involved in apologetics. I debate very often. And I was preparing for a debate on, uh, on Mary and the Immaculate Conception. Stumbled across an incredible, amazing, I think, the standard on, on the issue, a book that Father Coppice has written. And I got in touch with him. We began dialoguing pretty much almost every evening and we began to realize that currently uh, well before um, there really was not a whole lot on the market when it comes to books that deal with supposed problems in Mariology we recognize that in Catholic well definitely within Protestantism our Protestant brothers and sisters had a number of questions that would plague them when it came to Mary and we realized that even in Catholicism, perhaps, there were problems, questions, if you will, apparent problems, if you will. And we began talking, and Father has an incredible, unique way of looking at Scripture. Uh, he's a Greek scholar, looks at it like a Greek Christian, and we began putting together a few articles. Uh, Father began putting, in my opinion, great articles. I began to utilize them for my debate material. 
and it kind of really went from there. Uh, I, I think I've got the majority of it. Isn't that correct, Father? And we decided to then put that in the book. Yeah, I mean, the sort of prequel to that was uh, that this guy out of nowhere starts calling me and identifying himself as some sort of apologist after I'm a stuffy academic that hardly ever was leaving his room and writing for obscure journals that usually uh, take five years to get anything out uh, because of all the endless editorship uh, that's involved in those things. And he's asking me these questions and I was sort of like, I don't know who this guy is, but he seems to be a nice guy and he's asking, I guess, okay questions. And he would come back to me and keep going. And then eventually what ended up happening was um, I noticed that uh, he would ask a question. I would throw him on a scent of something and he actually went out and did hard work to figure out the answers instead of, you know, basically sending me an email saying, why don't you do all this work for me for free? He would actually uh, uh, go out and work really hard and come up with some really good material. And and I think that from there, I offered on one or two occasions to clarify a couple things that uh, seemed rather obvious to me just because of working in early Christian texts and uh, threw some articles together for free on the internet um, on his um, blog. And uh, we multiplied those articles, most of which are on Mariology. Some of them have to do with uh, other topics. And uh, eventually it was so popular, the number of downloads was was so great. And uh, by and large, the bulk of the material was free. We just said, why don't we improve on the material, improve on the um, format and put it out in a book and see if people are willing to buy what they were already reading for free. And boy, it's been a success. That's awesome. And having read the book, I can say it is a really impressive work. And people are sending me lots of Catholic books now, and I do my best to read through them. And I have to say the amount of substance that you guys pack in to just over, I think, 160 pages was quite impressive. So I I really enjoyed that. And I'll be sure to link to the book in the description as well as uh, to that website where they can find more of those articles if people want to see that. Thanks. Yeah, it's it's absolutely my pleasure, and thanks for your work that you guys put into the book. So, Thank you. Something I've noticed, though, in these conversations, when it comes to Mariology, you know, to put my cards on the table as someone who's grown up as a Protestant and goes to an evangelical school, I, I don't hear much about Mariology. It's just not something I'd really been thinking about much until recently. And as I look at these conversations and participate in them, I've noticed that it seems Protestants and Catholics often kind of talk past each other when it comes to these conversations because of different hermeneutical presuppositions. So could you give a brief description of your hermeneutical approach for this book, specifically as it relates to typology? Because that's not something I grew up with, and I think if an evangelical approaches it, they might be a little lost just at that forefront. So could we kind of lay the groundwork there? Sure. Um, Well, the first thing is, is that you're having Catholics that you meet that have hermeneutical presupposition as an improvement because uh, I'm not used to Catholics reading any Bible. So uh, that you actually found some, uh, I'd like to kind of know where those were at. Um, uh, the second thing is uh, it is an attempt to engage among others, uh, Catholics with the Bible. But the, as you say, there, there doesn't seem to be the same starting point that you're most used to. And I think the, the easiest difference to see is, um, and this has gone into some of the prep questions I think that you provided us with, which were very helpful. You know, uh, I I was looking at the Bible Gateway, which is a very nice free site, and I just wanted to see how many English translations of the Bible are out there uh, available without the subscription. It looked like it was somewhere around 65. Uh, And uh, what I've been starting some of the programs with is, is really emphasizing the fact 
when the New Testament writers sat down and they said, hmm, I'm going to get on the internet here or my version thereof, and I'm going to take a look at, as St. Luke, uh, the Bible editions that are available to me. And what pops up? One edition, the Greek Bible, that more or less has uh, the same substance, book by book, with uh, not a lot of variation um, by ancient standards. So what we're dealing with then is uh, the hermeneutical presupposition that what the New Testament authors quote 80 to 90 percent of the time, we should mirror referring to 80 to 90 percent of the time without neglecting that 10 or 20 percent, which is the Hebrew. And I think that my experience as a young man when I was going to Protestant Bible studies and trying to understand uh, which religious group I, w I wanted to adhere to, because I, I had some questions in my life as a teenager, um, it was pretty universal, even in Catholic, Roman Catholic uh, realms, to just assume that when we're talking about the Old Testament, we're talking about the Hebrew. But that's not what the New Testament writers are talking about. When they're talking about the whole New Testament, they're talking about the Greek Old Testament. And uh, though there's nothing wrong with prioritizing in my own life reading of the Hebrew text, the real question is how much intersect am I going to have with New Testament writers when I'm reading the New Testament? And I would say less than if you were using the Greek Old Testament. So um, I'll go ahead and see if William wants to add anything onto that. But I think that for the readers, the most obvious thing is there's only one edition of the Bible to use for these gospel writers, unless some of them knew Aramaic or uh, Greek. That's certainly not the scholarly consensus with someone like St. Luke, who's so very important for a lot of the Marian passages. And um, if we just understand that there's only one version of the Bible to quote, it's even more powerful than the King James version was in England, which had some early competitors. So you don't have any other versions to quote but this version. Yeah, a very, very good point there that Father is making. I think the when we're on that very topic of thinking of Luke, I am brought to rem remembering what the fathers particularly say about St. Luke. We've got the Venerable Bede, we have Ambrose, and we have a number of other fathers who clearly are preserving an ancient tradition. Well, look, we all know that Luke was a historian. We all know that he interviewed people. But when we look at the fathers, we recognize that in the early era of the church, they're preserving a tradition where they believed Luke, and I believe logically as well, had to have interviewed Mary. The kind of information Luke has is kind of like a, a bit of a behind-the-scenes kind of information he has. So recognizing that and then looking at the connections that Luke is making, I really think the kind of theology that he is um, unveiling as a masterful artist is, is very important when it comes to Mariology. I'd, I'd just yeah. add, I'm sorry. To, is no, the, go ahead. The, the last uh, principles um, are word plays and the use of vocabulary. Um, modern exegetes uh, have a lot of different things that they're looking for. Uh, we're trying to put ourselves more in the mindset of what a first century Christian would be capable of finding that doesn't presume some of the same scientific uh, apparatus that's available today. And one of the things that they're very interested in is how vocabulary is repeated, how it's played upon, uh, and how it flows. So if we find, I think one of the words that he would be used to in the book was wonderful, how the, the use of the word wonderful is used in Genesis, how it's used in Isaiah, how it's used in, uh, going backwards a little bit, Judges, and then how it's referred to in the Septuagint version um, in Luke 8 uh, and in Luke uh, 1, 
uh, I believe in 137, uh, once, once again, uh, it's all based off of understanding the journey of that word from Genesis all the way down to Luke. Awesome. So to, to put that together, and that's really helpful. So what I'm hearing is there's a preference for the Greek text, both of the New Testament and the Septuagint, the Greek text of the Old Testament, and then a certain prioritization or special attention to Luke and his gospel, given his interaction with Mary. And then as well, looking at word plays and specific use of vocabulary. Is that a, a fair way to kind of outline that methodology? Sure. And I would say that um, the, the Lucan principle is simply based off of frequency of mentions of Mary and that we have a, another hermeneutical key that allows for us to concentrate on Luke, which is prior to the destruction of Jerusalem, the, the uh, historians that we have of the church and the indications that we provide in the gospel show that there was a fighting between Jesus's family members and the non uh, we might say household family members for control of the church. Uh, so this is externally attested by the sources and internally is quite clearly there. And, and as a result, we suppose quite simply that once the family uh, feud is done and the apostolic church is ruled over by um, individuals who are by and large not household relatives of Jesus, meaning extended family or cousins, uh, then um, Mary can be mentioned more because she's less of a centerpiece to hold up my family standard for running the church based off of bloodline. Interesting. And that's a fascinating piece of kind of historical context, which is going to be helpful in understanding these conversations. Now, William, you mentioned briefly that you're trying to understand this as the early church would have understood this, or as the fathers would have understood it, which as an evangelical, you know, that idea of, I mean, we, we live by in, uh, evangelical theological schools of you know, that historical cultural approach of how would the original audience have understood that? And something that you point out, though, with the early church fathers that um, didn't necessarily come out in this, but I think comes out in the book and in Mariology in general, is this category of typology that I think is an interesting point in that I've had conversations with Catholics before when I was first starting this, and we would be talking back and forth about scripture, and I would just think, man, I never would have thought of that or seen that because it's just not a way that Protestants frequently, today at least, approach scripture. So could you explain a little bit of what typology is and perhaps how we see that in the early church? That is a fantastic question. Well, Typology, really, the important thing about it is it is pointing towards something that will come in the future. Indeed, when we look at, and, and it comes out fuller uh, in a fuller picture in the book, where we recognize, looking in the Old Testament, a lot of types or figures later point towards the Blessed Mother. And we find that come into fuller, into a fuller image once we arrive in the New Testament. For instance, Luke is very clear in making the clear connection grammatically and in in a very shocking fashion and i mean shocking because it might be it might have been very uh stunning to his audience to find that mary is a new ark of the covenant in the manner in which luke does break it down but indeed even if you read protestant theologians they will recognize the the language being used and the exact greek words being used for overshadowing and and there's just so much that is really when you look at it it's incredibly 
incredibly obvious, but then you you then wonder what uh, why is typology important? It's important because not only in the early fathers, and I think the book brings it out, the Bible, if you use the Bible, if you let the Bible interpret itself, you approach it in a very incredibly Jewish and ancient Christian manner because you can look in the New Testament and you get hints of what the New Testament is talking about from the Old Testament, and then it begins to unveil itself and a, a fuller image begins to appear. So one particular thing that I'm reminded of is in Luke, Luke chapter 1, uh, where we clearly have Mary's, uh, the words that she's using, pointing towards uh, words that we can find in the book of Judges, chapter 11. Luke would have recognized that his audience would have been very familiar with the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Old Testament. He's giving these bits and pieces of information to his audience, which would have been very familiar with that. Indeed, this is why when we get into the early church, Austin, it's, it's, it's incredible. Um, as early as Hippolytus, you've got Hippolytus of Rome writing in a very early period, recognizing that connection of Mary as new ark of the covenant. And indeed, you find it in fathers in, in, in every era, leading all the way into the medieval era, of course. So the typology is very important for the early church fathers because they recognize, they say, look, the Old Testament is pointing towards a truth that would later be unveiled by our almighty God. That truth is later unveiled in the New Testament. The early fathers caught that, and they were preaching this from... Uh, from the pulpits, if you will, uh, not literally the pulpits early on, because early on Christianity was um, on the run. <laughs> you know, once you get to post and they're able to worship without having to worry about getting their heads cut off. Then you find Mary mentioned much more. But to us, it's very significant that even when the church was so persecuted and on the run, you still have quite a lot about Mary being written in the early church. Interesting. Thank you for that. And so I think there's a couple interesting dynamics there. And there is that, that first one that you mentioned of there's a, a certain development that you see less of it, but it is there in the earliest fathers, maybe in the uh, apostolic fathers and those right after them. And then post Nicaea, we see uh, kind of more full flowering of Mariology. But if we look, you know, they're all looking at the biblical text to get this and tradition as well. But I would understand a lot of Protestants, and, you know, I've had conversations about this. I've had these thoughts as well of, you know, we, we look at Catholic theology or even Orthodox for that matter and see this full-fledged Mariology. And when you just read through the New Testament, it, if we're looking at it in terms of volume of citations— I'm not sure I would have anticipated that. And so how would you respond to someone who says, you know, all this, these connections you're making, they seem interesting. It's not something I'd seen before, but it seems maybe like a mountains out of molehills kind of thing. Like there, there's a little bit there, but does it warrant all of this? I'm sure you get that. And so how would you guys respond to something like that? I think the, um, the setup for that was kind of with the emphasis on the Septuagint. Um, when uh, you and I, quote scripture in very well-known passages. Um, you know, he who dips his hand in the dish with me. Um, I had somebody that would use that anytime somebody betrayed him, you know. We're all supposed to know what that passage means. Well, we can get the roundabout words, but you only have really one version of the words in the ancient church. You have maybe some 
uh, Jews who have converted as uh, Aramaic and arguably Hebrew speakers and are using that version of the scripture. But pretty much uh, the text of what most Christians are using and what mo most Christians are handing on, particularly after the sad and unfortunate destruction of Jerusalem twice, uh, is the Greek text. And so when Luke is um, choosing to say, on one hand, I can tell my story using my rather good command of the Greek language, or on the other, I can tell my story by quoting stuff people know by heart, but weaving it in such a way that every other verse is familiar to them, and it's drawing off of a prophecy fulfillment, a typological fulfillment, or a hint at what kind of uh, thing I'm talking about. There's a deeper meaning into what's going on. So, for example, um, by quoting three or four times in Luke 1, Judges, nearly verbatim, uh, Luke, is he simply uh, providing us quotes from Judges and we're not supposed to find anything further there? We're not supposed to investigate why Judges versus, let's say, Isaiah or Genesis is being used? And to answer the question, we looked. Why? And what we end up finding is the very reason why the early Christian, somebody like Ambrose or St. Ephraim, one from a Syriac-speaking background and the other one from a Latin-speaking background, though he read all the Greek fathers as a native Greek speaker, they both understood that Luke 134 was Mary saying, uh, how can this be, Archangel Gabriel, that I'm going to have a baby, for I do not know man. They both understood it to be Mary playing on the words of judges where there is a perpetual virgin who is sacrificed to Yahweh. And so now we can understand why the early Christians believed that Mary was a perpetual virgin who sacrificed her virginity in honor of the Lord. And we can also understand um, why there's a, quite a bit of development around this theme over the last 2,000 years. And sure, there can be exaggerations. I mean, we saw that, you know, Moses's serpent mounted on a pole that was instituted by God himself was uh, the object of superstition had to be burnt. Uh, and so if, if we're going to look at exaggerations in the, in the common populace and the uneducated or the exaggerated, we, we have to admit that those are there. But we're really talking about the principle. And if the principle is Luke is taking the only version of the Bible that the majority of Christians know for the first uh, several hundred, if not thousand years in the Greek-speaking world, and he is making their minds immediately go to these verses, chances are he wants them to learn something from that. And our job is to try to divine and provide for the reader what the most likely thing he wants them to learn. And if they disagree and they think that there's a more likely thing that Luke wants us to draw out of that, they're perfectly free to do so. Yeah, anything you'd like to add to that, William? I think that is a fantastic point there. And... I'm particularly reminded of the early fathers that Father points to in that we've got fathers from different backgrounds, a Latin one and then a Syriac one. To me, that lends itself to the obvious fact that the early church recognized very clearly that this is why Mary had taken a perpetual vow of virginity. The reason being is because really when you look at geographically the location of the great Ambrose of Milan and that of Ephraim, they're quite far apart from one another. And that to me shows, well, to add to that, 
even though you have got Ephraim and Ambrose as incredible witnesses to uh, Luke 1, 34, Judges 11, you have a number of other fathers that even though they don't make that direct connection, they recognize that Mary has taken a vow. So you've got Augustine doing that. You've got Gregory of Nazianzus doing that. But even maybe even more mind-blowing, brother, is you've got a document in the Proto-Evangelium of James, written at an incredible early period in time. Indeed, you've got scholars that have even lumped it in with apostolic writings. I mean, if you're going to lump in the letter to Diognetes, a lot have lumped in the Proto-Evangelium. With that being said, in the Proto-Evangelium, you have what we believe is quite significant Mariology there, Mary being called a fruit of justice, which in essence means that she possesses original justice, and Mary, we are being told, had taken a vow of virginity. So there, we recognize that in the early church, whereas you don't have volumes and volumes of Mariology being written, what you do have, whereas it may be not as much as Christology, because that was the heresy, that was uh, that that was the teaching that heretics were attacking. They were attacking the truth about Christ. It might not be as voluminous as as uh, teachings on Christology or that on the doctrine of the Trinity. You do have quite significant things being said about Mary. Yeah, I found some of the insights you guys gave into the dogma of the perpetual virginity of Mary very interesting. And again, as someone who grew up Protestant, we we didn't talk about Mary in these ways. We had a sense of Catholics talk about Mary way too much. She was Jesus' mother, and that, that's pretty much all all she got. Maybe she got you know a, a portion of the sermon on Christmas Eve, and, and that was it. And so it's not as though going into this, even as a theology student, I had much of a really strong thought. I'd say I was just agnostic on the idea of the perpetual virginity of Mary. But I think you guys brought out some really interesting, not only early church sources, which I think are very powerful, but the way you look at scripture with regards to that, including the idea of the question of, well, how could this be? And uh, for I know not man, and tracing that back to the Old Testament. It's really interesting stuff. And I think there's an important point here that you guys have touched on a little, but I want to allow you to maybe say something about, because I've talked to people who come from similar backgrounds to me, and when they hear these ideas of, hey, the way that she said, for I know not man, and Luke maps onto Judges 1, and they're thinking, I mean, maybe, but it just seems like that's the way you would say it. But if I understand this correctly... The Greek language is fairly precise in how you could say things. Could you speak on that just a little as far as why that gives more credence to using similar vocabulary or using similar grammar for a certain thing? Go ahead, William. You like to uh, expound on this one with the the, uh, exclusivity argument. Yeah, I really do. Father really knows me already like the the, uh, back of his hand. Um, Austin, that is a fantastic question. So, again, going back to the great Luke, St. Luke would have been, his, he would have recognized his audience would have been very familiar with the Greek Old Testament. So, the connection that he is making in Luke 1 to Judges 11 cannot be mere coincidence. The reason being, 
the kind of grammar utilized in Judges 11 is shocking. And it lines up exactly with that of Luke 1. What do we read in Judges 11? We read that uh, Jephthah's daughter says, uh, let this be done unto me. Let this be done to me. And really, funny enough, if we take little bits and pieces from Judges 11 and we read them out of, uh, you know, those particular pieces, we read them to somebody, they would probably think you're reading Luke, uh, Luke 1 to them. Because the language being utilized by Jephthah's daughter, who, by the way, has been vowed as a perpetual virgin as a sacrifice. So she replies to her father by saying, let this be done to me, when she finds out that she has been vowed as a perpetual virgin. But we find much more similarity. We find the fact that um, there is uh, the Holy Ghost coming upon Jephthah shortly before the battle. We also find Jephthah's daughter, and we can look at it, we can compare the kind of similar language. How long does Mary, um, how long does she stay with Elizabeth? She stays three months. How long is Jephthah's daughter roaming and bewailing her virginity? Because really, at the time, we can imagine it was quite an unfortunate and a sad thing. She's never going to be able to really live her life to, to the fullest. You know, it was a sad thing. Whereas Mary's vow is, is a time for joy and a time for happiness because it doesn't line up in the sense of being something sad. It's not something sad. But Jephthah's daughter, bewailing her virginity, goes to the, to the hillside, to the mountainside for how long? For three months. At the end of two months, we read, she returns. So you've got that lining up grammatically as well. But then you get to the very important language that Mary utilizes in Luke 1, where it says, how can this be? I know not man. You then look at the language that Jephthah's daughter utilizes in Judges 11. It is the exact same language. Why is that significant? Because there is something that scholars utilize today, and it's very important. I know Father utilizes it a lot. It's called the Thesaurus Lingre Grecce. That is the largest Greek database in the world. We are blessed to live in a time where we can look at ancient manuscripts, ancient documents that have been collected online in an incredibly massive database. Before the year 100 AD, that particular phraseology, those particular words are not uttered anywhere. You cannot find them anywhere other than Luke 1 and Judges 11. The manner in which you find them, you, anybody can pick up the Septuagint, even if they don't know Greek, pick up an interlinear, if you will. Uh, look it up, look up the way it is broken down in Judges 11, then go to Luke 1. Without a doubt, the conclusion that one has got to reach is that Mary is quoting directly from there. Luke is quoting from Judges 11, literally being told, we are, we are learning a very important theological lesson. That is that Mary has taken a perpetual vow of virginity. And that is why the early church fathers, by the way, the early church was unanimous that Mary remained a perpetual virgin. We recognize not all of them talked about evil, but in terms of being a perpetual virgin, they were unanimous. And one other thing I would like to add that I always like to add when I talk to my Protestant brothers and sisters, I wonder if you know this, Austin, I wonder if you know that even the Protestant reformers were unanimous. You are aware of that. 
Yes, I just spent a semester studying Calvin uh, with a really yeah. bright Calvin scholar. So, yeah, I, but I think that's a fascinating thing for Protestants to hear, because especially for Protestants to read Luther on Mary, I think they'd be blushing if they if they did so. And it it's certainly an interesting way in which there's many, but I think this is one way in which we see the heirs of the Reformation kind of distancing themselves from specifically those magisterial reformers. I think a lot of Reformed Baptists would be surprised to, to read Calvin and, and just hear the, the ways in which they differ, and this being one of them. I, I think that uh, the one thing, and I'll just re- briefly really add, I think the one thing that shocked a, a Lutheran friend of mine was one time when I, um, I put a quote there for him in a message, and, and uh, he didn't realize it was Luther. And then I said, uh, he wondered, well, where, where, did Luther, where did Luther write that about Mary being immaculate? And then when I told him, well, he wrote it on the very feast day of the Immaculate Conception, which he used to celebrate. A lot of a lot of people don't recognize that Luther was uh, was very devoted to Mary. Yes, it's it's a very interesting thing, and I think if if Protestants are scared of reading Catholic sources on Mary, they could start with reading what what Luther has to say, if if that feels more comfortable. Um, but but something that, that's come out several times here is the importance of the Old Testament in understanding Mariology, which I think for many people would just be counterintuitive because they're not going to find the the name Mary <laughs> in reference to the Virgin Mary in the Old Testament. And, and I want to push in here a little bit because I think there's some misunderstanding in what is being claimed and what isn't, perhaps. Because something that I would hear said, again, you know, I'm thinking of the hermeneutics classes I've taken at Moody, or just the approach that many of my Protestant friends would have to this, is they would say, okay, like I see that parallel language, but are you saying that the author of Judges was talking about Mary there, that that's what he was getting at, or is it Luke is appropriating this and kind of just uh, like hyperlinking back to it? What's the dynamic there? What what are we saying the Old Testament is and isn't doing, perhaps? Yeah, these are great questions because, uh, once again, we go back to hermeneutics. Uh, the, you know, the Semitic scholar uh, is going to be interested in uh, things like syntax and uh, vocabulary and um, analogies to other Semitic languages in order to understand the more difficult passages. Um, they're really going to want to see some sort of uh, contemporary text that would say that such and such a passage uh, in the uh, second millennium BC is prophetic. And that's certainly, we're, we're not going to be able to make those kind of claims because we don't have the accompanying literature. We don't have commentaries, for example, on judges from the second millennium that uh, are going to, to give us that information. We do have a fair amount of second temple literature. Uh, and we have to admit that just because a second temple Jew sees um, many of the passages that we're dealing with, with either Mary or Jesus, because we do a lot of Christological prophecies, as you know, in the book as well. Um, It is true that some of those are Jewish, uh, but Second Temple Jewish, and we we can't demonstrate from the extant literature or from analogy with other Semitic literature, which of course, to a degree, doesn't make sense to the extent that they're polytheists or they don't have the, they're not, they're not drawing from the same uh, revelations. that there's a prophecy there. So we're very limited in what we can say as textual scholars of the Old Testament. Uh, what we can say though is how Jews uh, believe that there were certain texts that were special uh, and that these texts, either in their wording 
they thought of them as needing to be fulfilled in some way, uh, which is a little bit different than prophecy. Prophecy is saying that a contingent future event is going to, by um, prediction, under inspiration, happen. Uh, by and large, that's how ancients treat prophecy. I know that there's been a redefinition of prophecy for many and various reasons. Uh, but there's also fulfillment passages tend to talk about more vaguely that if there's not a kingdom of justice, we're awaiting one. If there isn't someone that's legislating like Moses, there should be. Uh, if uh, we have a um, notion that the law is lacking in something because it was given as a punishment on Sinai for sin, then Paul is going to argue that uh, we're waiting for some recapitulation or reconnection to the original healthy covenant made with Abraham. And it's these kinds of anticipations of fulfillment that we can read in the first century. And so a lot of our readings are more interested in what first century Jews and Christians are seeing in the text and not what a second millennial or a first millennial uh, Israelite and then on to Jew is going to see in the text because um, a lot of that's going to be not only conjecture, but it's going to be us projecting into the text. Yeah, and I, I think that makes sense as well, given that we're trying to understand not only what the original author meant, but what the original author of the New Testament, who's appropriating these quotations, how he would have read them at that time, being a Second Temple Jew or whoever uh, we have writing. William, anything you wanted to add to that? I think that is, those are uh, fantastic points. I really don't have much uh, much to add to that. I, I agree with everything Father has pointed out there. I think that uh, really, really, when we look at it, when we examine the text the way that he's pointing out, I think that we get a kind a kind of imagery that I, I guess, it, in my opinion, it really I, I would describe it as being rock solid. I think it's very very obvious what the New Testament authors are doing in particular. I know that the book does bring up a number of them. We bring up um, uh, more than just Luke. But when I mention Luke, I think Luke and his Mariology is very, very strong. I'm frequently reminded of individuals wondering and saying, well, look, uh, after we leave, um, after when we get to the book of Acts, you don't hear a whole lot about Mary. Uh, you don't hear a whole lot about her later on in the Bible either. As a Catholic, we would uh, we would say, look, we recognize Luke as the author of Acts and Luke uh, said very important things about Mary already in, in throughout his gospel. And we would also argue that you do get to the book of Revelation. You do get an incredible image of Mary in Revelation chapter 12, as the earliest fathers that did their interpretation of the book of Revelation recognized there. So we think that whereas, and very understandably so, uh, you don't have as much as you have uh, uh, about our Lord and Savior Christ, you do have a significant amount of Mary in there. And what you do have about Mary, in my opinion, gives us uh, an incredible picture of, a, of an incredible woman, uh, a creature, a creature of God. She was not divine. Uh, but, but indeed, uh, we get the kind of figure that we recognize. We finally say, okay, if we allow Holy Writ to interpret itself uh, in the, as, as scholar Sebastian Brock would say, who, by the way, 
we're very grateful. A very good friend of ours, and he gave us a very, very uh, good ringing endorsement for that book. And Mary, as he would say, uh, the method in which we approach the book is the method in which a good ancient Jew would have done it. And we're reminded indeed, because if you look at the books that us Catholic and Orthodox call Deuterocanon, the Book of Wisdom, the Book of Sirach, you have interpretations in those books of many portions of the books of Genesis and other books. So the way scripture is allowed to interpret itself, we think is a very key in, in getting a fuller picture of Mary. Well, that's a great, that's a, that's a great follow-up William, because I mean, maybe that's a, a greatest summary is in, in a point is to say the typological and many of the oblique references, uh, we have to read them all together. Uh, but many of them, are simply attempting to do what you just said. They're writing a, you might say, a subtle commentary on Old Testament texts. There's there's some yep. comment going on there. Well, thank you guys for going through all of that. And I hope for those listening, it doesn't feel like we're belaboring this point of hermeneutics, but I think it's really important because I think if to go further in the conversation, people have to have the, the same rules that they're working by. We, we can't play a sport by two different sets of rules and we can't interpret the Bible with two different sets of rules and get the same conclusion. So I think that's been really helpful. And I do want to transition into some of the main, uh, shall we call them rediscoveries you all made. But just one final point I'd like to ask is as we look into this, what's at stake here? I mean, like I said, as a Protestant, I didn't grow up with hardly any of this. And I can't say, you know, I mean, perhaps it's just ignorance is bliss, but I, I didn't feel a gaping hole in my theology. But what is at stake here? Why is Mariology so important? Do you want me to he head that one up first there, William? Yeah, if you could. Uh, I'd say the, the, the first reason why um, is it's, it's disturbing, I think, for more um, historical Christians. And by that, I mean those who have kind of a uh, bimillennial history uh, as an institution, uh, that Mary can be a bad guy. Um, and that's a real tough talking point between, let's say, second millennial Christians, uh, as far as identifying themselves as a incorporated movement of some sort. Um, and so a lot of conversations of were both on the same Christological page can't go before because by the very fact that someone is saying that Mary is a good person, that's already a problem for some Christians. Um, it may not be the majority, um, but, but there's a significant and vocal minority that when I grew up um, who are convinced that Mary was a, was kind of a bad guy in the New Testament and, um, and that uh, really she had a negative impact and a negative overall role. And of course, uh, for us in, in the Catholic Church, uh, that, that's disturbing because uh, we have the Marian dogma. So the, probably the, the first point is, it's really important to establish that Mary's a good person, uh, objectively, as far as the scripture is concerned. Uh, that doesn't commit us to her having four dogmas celebrated uh, in her name. It just means that we can we all agree that if you read scripture as best as we can tell, first century person using first century sources uh, would have read these Greek works 
can we come up with a consistent way to read scripture? Because we do presume, now this would not be considered scholarly, but we, we do presume uh, in our reading that uh, the, the evangelists ultimately must agree with one another. And uh, now we do make some arguments how that's the case, but we are in that sense doing apologetics. We're not pitting Matthew against Mark and Luke against Mark and these sorts of things. So what you'll often see is, is kind of um, average everyday scholarship nowadays. In fact, you probably sell more books in academia, like a hundred. Uh, if you uh, uh, really, uh, you know, uh, convince someone that two people's communities were disagreeing on everything. So uh, the second point I think is important is that because we're coming from a historical church again with a, a two millennial history, we're we're really committed to trying to dig out those four fundamental Marian dogmas: uh, the triple virginity before, during, and after. Uh, the birth of Jesus as the first dogma, Mary is under her title and its implications as mother of God, the Immaculate Conception and the Assumption. I mean, so we would say that what's at stake here is for us to have a conversation on not whether or not those dogmas are true, because that's not what you get out of the book at all, but whether or not you can understand uh, that scripture itself uh, may provide some of the foundations for later Christian reflections. Uh, whether or not we consider those reflections to be the traditions of men, which uh, we have to admit that some of the expressions um, have been rather faddish. They come and they go. Um, but we were really wondering, because uh, I, I actually did not expect that the Magnificat, which is Mary's hymn in the, in the book, was going to, by Reverend Dr. Brown and his um, actually majorly uh, Protestant scholarly team in the 1970s, that their findings were going to really justify uh, a conclusion that we had. And that was when Mary sings her hymn, she's singing about a long time ago in her own life at 12 years old. And this is modern exegetes who see this as a problem because Mary's not allowed to sing hymns about herself when she was a little child. So they come up with a rather complicated theory, which uh, scientifically has problems with parsimony. Uh, and it becomes very complicated by saying that Mary couldn't be speaking about herself receiving special graces or a privileged creation. Hence, what this is, is Luke badly adapting, it's a rather good Greek speaker, badly adapting a hymn, which was in the past tense, he mistakenly, inadvertently, or just didn't care, to take the past tenses and put them into the future, looking towards the resurrection. That this hymn should have been sung, that Jesus is being conceived, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my, uh, and Galias uh, and Ipsihihu, and my spirit uh, uh, rejoiced in the, in the remote past tense, and my spirit rejoiced in God my Savior. Um, when Mary says this, uh, the, the Protestant and our, our Catholic scholar, Reverend Brown, admit. Mary is strangely talking about her life some long time ago, which has no effect in the present, at 12 years old. So when did this happen? Well, it couldn't have happened. And so then the, a very complex argument ensues to try to tell us that this is really probably a hymn that is adopted. Not that we have any evidence that this hymn existed outside of Luke, but this is probably a hymn, it must be a hymn, uh, adapted from outside of Luke's actual writings, since he does have a command of Greek tenses. And uh, he should have put it in the future so that when Jesus resurrected, then he would accomplish all these things for Mary. Well, there's a lot of labor 
in those argumentations. There's a lot of labor and there's a, there's a house that feels very much like a house of cards as you get higher and higher and higher. And would a first century Christian read it, read it that way uh, when who, for whom Luke was writing? Or would he have, as a Greek-only speaker, so far as we know, not as an Aramaic or Hebrew speaker, would he have meant past tense by using the past tense in a context in which uh, it's quite clear that it must be the past tense? And instead of very, very complicated arguments, which make sense only after a series of uh, granted presuppositions, we just assume that you read it like it sounds in your ears if you're speaking language every day. And what you end up getting to is something that sounds a lot like what Catholics are saying, which is something happened when Mary was either conceived or created, which made her a marvel. And that's the reason why she is declared as just before her moment of conception. And that's exactly what we mean by the Immaculate Conception. Thanks for all of that. And I... I appreciate the way you guys went about this in your book and William, I'd like to hear your answer on this as well as why it's so important. Um, but you mentioned at the very beginning, what you won't find in the book is just, Hey, here's how you get to dogma one. Here's how you get to dogma two. Here's how, but really just approaching scripture and trying to see how would this have been read and then allowing for how that might lead to the dogmas for me as a Protestant, that was a much more accessible way and it, I appreciated that approach. So I just wanted to call that out. And I appreciate you going through the Magnificat there as well. Um, but William, why would you say this is so important? I know you're a convert and you mentioned this was something you had to wrestle with. Why now would you say that Mariology is so important? Great, great point there. And I would, uh, I would uh, agree with everything Father said. And I would add by saying... I think um, it's very important because <clears throat> the one thing that we tend to forget at times, Austin, when we read the early fathers, because I know within Catholicism and Orthodoxy, we love reading the early church fathers. We love to read them. But maybe we kind of tend to forget at times the early fathers relied heavily, heavily on Holy Writ. The great Athanasius, when battling the Arians, relied heavily on the Bible. Jerome, when battling Helvidius, relied heavily on the Bible. In fact, he used, as you know, as, as you know very well, because you've read our book, he, to battle back Helvidius, he began to refute him directly from the Bible. We recognize that, in, and even, even when Pelagius was battled back as, as a heretic, uh, uh, he was rebuked uh, with holy writ. We tend to forget the early fathers relied heavily on the Bible. That is why we believe it's very, very important to approach Mary from this kind of a perspective, to look at it, to allow her to become fully, uh, fully viewed through the lenses, through the lens of the Bible, if you will. Why do we not approach it immediately and say, well, look, the church teaches um, uh, Mary, Mother of God, Perpetual Virgin, Immaculate Conception, and all these other teachings. We believe when you look at the text, you allow it to unveil itself. You will come to the conclusion that proper Christology shows us that Mary in Luke 1, when and Luke is very meticulous, we believe, in, and I know Father would agree with me, Luke is, Luke is very careful in the way he lays out his narrative and the way he lays out his evidence when showing Mary as the new Ark of the Covenant, Mary as mother of God, 
and Mary as new Ark of the Covenant, they go hand in hand, hand in hand. The language being utilized there shows us a very important thing, not only about Mary, but about Christ as well. So we think that when, when we allow the Bible to give the proper honor due to the mother of God, we're in essence giving full honor to Christ, to our incarnate God. That is why we viewed it as so important. And it, I believe even in the introduction, we show how Athanasius viewed this the methodology of allowing the Bible to be an incredible interpretive uh, um, machine, mechanism. Now, again, we're not saying, well, you know, toss out all tradition, not by any means at all. We're not saying that. But we believe that when, if you want a firm biblical foundation on Mariology, when you go through everything that is said about Mary, because as you know very well, even though you may not have voluminous texts of Mary in the Bible, Mary comes up quite often. John chapter 2, Luke 1, Luke 2, Luke 11, as you know very well, that famous, famous objections that are brought up. We, we think, we believe that, and we believe very strongly, when you encounter these supposed problems and objections, we think that the text gives us very clear answers. And rather than a damaging or a, or a disappointing image of Mary that would disappoint um, anybody, we've had people tell us, Austin, and perhaps to me that has been very, very, very um, fulfilling when we have people, we've had pastors tell us, we've had uh, individuals that are non-Catholics say, hey, we read the book, and well, the conclusion we've come to is, that's a Mary that I can get on board with. That's a biblical Mary. And to me, I, I don't know if I'm also speaking for Father here, but to me, that is quite quite fulfilling. No, uh, that's the, exactly how the book is meant to be read. Uh, you're not walking away from this book uh, now finally figuring out which denomination you should belong to. You're walking away from the book saying, I can incorporate the Bible uh, on Mary into my faith life and not be worried about Mary. Wow. Yeah, and what... What uh, fantastic feedback that you've guys gotten in that in that form. And let's jump straight to that. I'd like to talk about some of those problem passages, because for me, this was one of the most distinctive parts of your book as well, of, hey, you know, again, not that these are things that I had, you know, had this firm or like thorough apologetic upbringing in, but you hear these passages or just in my reading through the New Testament, and you read them, you know, at the face and you think, huh. It's kind of interesting that Catholics have such a high view of Mary, given mm -hmm. this text or that text. So what could we look at some of those and briefly, because I know you guys go into it more in your book, but how would you uh, encourage people to look at those texts? And maybe we could go to Luke 11, you mentioned that, or if there's another one you'd like to bring up and quickly show that, hey, perhaps what you see on the surface or this impression you might have got about this text isn't in fact what you might think that it actually teaches a higher Mariology than you would assume. Go ahead, uh, William. I know you're a, you love the uh, Luke 11 narrative. Yeah, I'll, I'll tackle Luke 11. And I know father will have another uh, incredible one in his mind. Luke 11 to me probably would have been the one that I would have gone to the most back when I was a reformed Protestant. And I, I would have said, well, look, you clearly have, an individual trying to um, 
mention something positive about the mother of our Lord, and rather they're turned back, and they're told, no, 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 that Mary is not important. My mother is not important. Uh, rather, William, uh, I I could pull it up right now. Yeah, yeah. Uh, reading, so we all know what we're talking about. Yeah, I'm going to pull it up. Uh, yeah, and and for people that are wondering where I am at, I am at Luke 11. And you go all the way down to, I believe, 45. Um, Are you 27 and 28? There we go. 27 and 28. There we go. Here we go. Okay. Why, and, and I'm going to go ahead and read it for people to, they can follow along. Luke 11. While he was saying this, a woman in the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you and, bre and the breasts that nursed you. But he said, Blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and obey it. So I'm using a particular translation that it might not might not be as 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 uh, as great as uh, as as um, uh, precise as the Greek, but let me break it down either which way. You find particular language being utilized here in Luke one, and, and I'm going to give you a brief insight, and then I'll let Father fill in the rest of the blanks. But are we left then to conclude that? Christ is saying no. Mary, Mary is not to. Mary is not uh, one of the people that have kept the word, that have vouchsafed that word. Rather, the opposite is what we've been shown here. So, and and you can find it in little clues in the Greek being utilized here by Luke. How do we know that Luke is not rebuking? That kind of a claim, we can know that very clearly, Austin, because in Luke one. We've got that very Greek word for word, the logos. Indeed, the word comes to Mary. Mary hears the word. Mary, unlike Zechariah, accepts, protects, vouchsafes that word, and preserves it in her heart. So in Luke 1, Mary is the very first person to hear the word and to accept the word, to protect it and ponder it in her heart. That is why you've got incredible fathers like Augustine, Ambrose, and many others that say, well, clearly what is being talked about here is in Luke 11, and we have to bring out this very, this important point, the important message that is being laid down by Christ is that hearing, hearing the word, hearing the word of God, accepting the word of God, protecting it in your heart, is more important than any kind of biological event. That is the message that is being conveyed here in Luke 11. But to then try to claim that Luke 11 is not including Mary in that would be erroneous because the very same author of Luke 11 does indicate for us that Mary is one of the ones that heard the word and one of the ones that kept the word. Father, do you have anything maybe uh, you'd like to add to that? Sure. Um... Again, word plays are so very important here. Luke is, is supposing his audience to be paying attention when somebody hears the word of God and uses it, because that's how he sets up Luke. He sets it up by um, clearly referring to two enunciations, one that went really well and one that went really bad. The one that went really well, actually, is Abraham's. He uh, bowed in front of angels and gave him some stuff to eat under an overshadowing oak and some all, and some promise came to him. And uh, then an annunciation came to Sarah, and that didn't go so well. And uh, 
We're not quite uh, exegetes are a little puzzled about what the rebuke and the laughing and all that kind of stuff was. Um, I've heard some interesting interpretations of that. But what we do know is Sarah wasn't really happy with uh, how her enunciation went. I think that she was pretty embarrassed. And so what we oftentimes skip over, though, uh, exegetes clearly see that Zechariah is one enunciation in Luke 1 and that Mary is the other enunciation. Zechariah's enunciation goes pretty poorly. He seems to be uh, a type or an anticipation, um, I'm sorry, a fulfillment of uh, uh, of Sarah. Uh, he hears, hears the word of God, the logos, kiriu, uh, or logoi, I think it is, it's in the plural, and um, he doesn't believe. And so he kind of gets a punishment as uh, Sarah got a rebuke. Whereas when Abraham believed, it was immediately counted to him as justice, and he had a child of promise. Well, Mary immediately believes. She is declared as one uh, who is filled with grace, and after she hears and she believes, uh, and we know that she believed because very shortly after, Elizabeth says, blessed are you who believed. Uh, so we're already starting, starting to see all the components in, in, in chapter one of Luke. There's a woman who hears a logos that she believed in the logos, and that's why she's blessed. So when's the next time we hear about this? Um, the only other time that we hear about this is in uh, Luke 10, where Mary Magdalene almost gets us there. She's not set, she's said to hear the word of God, but she's nowhere said to believe it. Only Mary qualifies under everything. Hearing a word and believing and being blessed, one of the macharismoi, uh, the uh, blessings, the, uh, uh, what do we call those things, the beatitudes. She's, uh, so to speak, uh, given a, a, a beatitude status. Um, and instead, uh, Mary Magdalene gets very close, though, and uh, she does hear the word of God. She sits at his feet, and she does get a reward from, from Jesus. But then we finally hear in the next chapter, in 11, that uh, a woman says, hey, blessed is the biological this, and blessed is the biological that of you. And Jesus says, no, no, no much more. So the, the way that you translate that rather is oftentimes the key to whether or not Mary's a good Mary in your Bible or a bad Mary. Uh, one of the ways, if, if you see that Luke is playing off of Luke 1 and the two kinds of enunciation, the two logoi that come, the good response and the bad response, and that Mary hears and believes, then you know that the proper translation should be not rather, but all the more or all the much more Blessed is she who hurt, blessed are they who hear the word of God and keep it. It's not exclusive to Mary, but the jumping point for that reflection in Jesus's mind is a mention of Mary as blessed. And the reason why um, it's in the masculine plural, uh, we argue, is because Mary is not the sole concentration of that passage. That's the concentration of the woman that says blessed. Jesus has a bigger mission than to just make Mary blessed. His mission is to make all of us hearers of the word so that we keep the word and that we be like the first keeper of the word, Mary, which is to receive our own enunciation of the word from God, to keep it in our hearts and to be saved. And so uh, once we see how simple this message is, but that it's all a fun game to the listener of the whole story, um, it just becomes a non-issue. Yeah, thank you for that. I have to say that was one of, there were a few moments, but when I was reading that particular section of your book, it was what people describe as kind of like that light bulb moment of, oh, 
that actually makes a lot of sense. And it didn't seem like a ton of work to get there. And so, mm-hmm. that's something that I really liked and why we focus so much on hermeneutics at the beginning, because I liked the way you guys approached these things and how you took people through the steps with you again, and only 160 some pages, but allowed people to kind of see that journey and go, Oh, actually that reading, it it doesn't feel like a stretch at all. It it makes sense. And it's such a, a slight shift of seeing that rather being not rather as in we have this group and then this group, but rather like this one and even more so on that same one and really made a lot of sense. Now, I believe you guys went through some other problem passages, if you will, as well. And just one category, and uh, I'm going to be a bad evangelical here and not have the exact reference on my head, but the passages where it seems that Jesus downplays the role of his family in general. And you guys brought up the historical cultural context of this and with his family in the early church, but could you speak to that again in light of this kind of segment of problem passages? Well, you know, William has been preparing the book of Numbers uh, because he was supposed to have a debate that sadly got canceled because his uh, his uh, interlocutor got sick. So, William, why don't you rip out Numbers and tell us how it's... Uh, Jerome found it for uh, for uh, William, and then William gave it to me, and then I plugged it into uh, the synoptics. Yeah, let me go ahead and uh, uh, break that down and... Um... I will approach it from a number of angles, and if you have any questions, I fill in any blanks. In, in first off, before we go to numbers, in, in in the Gospel of Mark, particularly, we can find it in Matthew as well. We have what to certain audiences, and I can pretty much uh, tell you the passage off the top of my head: Mark chapter six, verse three to four. We read about the family of Christ, and. Usually throughout history, and this is one thing that we we think is very different about this book, usually throughout history, whenever we hear about the brothers of of Christ, immediately you have a Catholic or an Orthodox that will argue, oh, okay, well, um, uh, the word Adelphos for brother or Adelphi for sister, you know, it can't always mean, um, you know, a brother or sister from the same womb. Immediately they're on the defensive. But if we allow, rather than immediately go into the defensive and we allow Holy Writ to really kind of give us the definitions for why it's calling them brothers and sisters, we get a fuller image that is being shown to us. And when we read in Mark 6, 3 to 4, the kind of familial divisions that are being shown to us, without a shadow of a doubt, and it's very, very incredible, Mark and Luke, the, the evangelists, recognized the kind of familial divisions found in the book of Numbers, Numbers 1, 2 to 3. And we know this because of the language utilized there as well. Relatives or kinsmen, depending on which translation you like. I know the New King James Version, I believe, uses kinsmen, and then we have the New Revised Standard using relatives, I believe. Uh, Whichever one you have, either which way, they can be interchangeable words used. Uh, Liddell and Scott and many other Greek lexicons will translate that Greek word found there as syngenusin from Singanese will translate it as meaning the, a massive amount of times cousin. So the important thing is in Mark 6, 3 to 4, we read about the brothers and the sisters of Christ. And this can be quite a problematic passage for people that believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. But we then hear about them. And then right afterwards, we hear, we're told Christ 
replying by saying prophets are not without honor uh, in, in, their, in their own, uh, I think it says hometown or country, in their country and in their own home, actually, and among their relatives. He is then telling us, and because they're both connected, that the brothers and sisters that appear, that are mentioned in the previous verse, are his relatives. But the amazing thing is, we, we just heard that they were his brothers and they were his sisters. But now we, we receive clarification that they are relatives, meaning they're not children from the same mother, meaning James, Joseph, Simon, they're not children of Mary. We're literally told there. So here's the incredible thing that I think comes out very clearly in the book. We're not trying to make an apologetic argument in the book. We're rather letting the book give you the direct answer. Instead of trying to come up with a, you know, any kind of apologetic argument to make your case on the dogma of the perpetual virginity of Mary, we're reading the text showing how he's pointing to the census that is being taken in Numbers 1, 2 to 3, which shows a familial division there. We're bringing that out clearly. We're showing how this division can exist in an oikos, in a household, in the New Testament text. When we do that, when we allow that to come forth, we then recognize the very clear language being utilized by Mark but I know that doesn't get to the heart of your question. The heart of your question was, what's going on with all this controversy? Well, we know that the brothers and the sisters were, which are, are identified as relatives. We know that they're causing a bit of an uproar. We know that not only from Mark, we can find that in, Mark, in Matthew. And then we can find that, and Father can correct me if I'm wrong. I hope I'm not wrong. I believe Hegesippus is the earliest church historian that we have documented, he provides documentation as well, that that kind of power struggle, if you will, um, it was very present in the early church. And Father, I don't know if you want to fill in a little bit of those blanks uh, in regards to that. Yeah, um, Hegesippus is writing around 180. Uh, I've recently started reading through all of Tertullian's works, and it looks like there may be some hopeful texts there where he's, uh, he's aware of some of these issues as well, but I still have to flesh those out. Um, the, the major issue here is Jesus has to respond to his enemies in Mark 6. His enemies say, hey, there's this list of people. Uh, it's called um, your mom. We don't like her. She's dishonorable. Uh, we don't like your cousins, who we name all four of those boy men. We call them your brothers. We don't like them. They're dishonorable. And then we really don't like your sisters. Uh, they're, they're positively um, opposing your ministry. It's quite clear. And, and they live at your house at Nazareth. Well, the division between house and Jesus's response to them is, is quite interesting. Jesus will respond and say, I'm going to skip over my mom. I'm not mentioning anything about my mom, but I am going to talk about two other groups that you mentioned. One is my household. And in numbers, the word household or Ikos or Ikea, depending on uh, where it's used in the Greek Old Testament, uh, means extended family. Uh, that's the exact definition uh, that you'll find in a lexicon. And then he also calls the group of Josies and the other three brothers 
his Senganis or Senganes, if you're a, a Rasmian. Uh, and uh, well, the, the most authentic translation of Singenes uh, is a cousin of a different mother, a cousin of a different mother. And we see this in St. Paul as well, which uh, I won't go into the details about, but uh, Paul has a place where he's quite clear. Um, these are my brothers, that is my, my, my uh, cousins. And so he's using the, the division of brothers as well, uh, the division of numbers as well. So we're seeing that the Pauline text, we just recently today found uh, a text in Josephus, which also uses this division, where Josephus is talking about a king who had on one hand children, and on the other hand, children of a different mother who he calls Singanese. So we're seeing that the external testimonies and the internal biblical testimonies, both in the Old and New Testament, all line up in the exact same way. And that is that Jesus identifies the previous list of people as the boys are definitely Singanese, as well as the girls, but the girls are also called his extended family of his, of his household. And one, once you start seeing this, uh, we show how in Matthew, you see the same thing, and that there's even some small references to the division of numbers uh, in Luke's uh, gospel. His, um, and we, we see that Mary, for example, her, her cousin, who doesn't live in the same house as she is, is called a Singanese, uh, which is Elizabeth. Whereas the cousins that do live in the same house, Ikea or Ikos, uh, happen to be called um, uh, the, the sisters who live in the extended family or the household. So it's, it's these divisions that we make very precise. You can actually build a family tree of Jesus and be consistent with it. And none of it contradicts Paul's own use. What we're finding now is Josephus' attestations and the synoptic attestations of the family division. It's all based off of numbers. Wow, that was fantastic. And again, if you haven't read the book and you're out there listening, I would definitely recommend it. it I'm incredibly impressed how you guys have this type of encyclopedic knowledge just in a conversation, and it's laid out very well in the book as well. And again, back to your approach, something that I loved is it didn't feel like you were trying to pigeonhole me into agreeing with you, but you laid out, if you don't, you kind of have a, you have to read Mark and the rest of the gospel writers very strangely to maintain that they are actual brothers. And mm -hmm. I found that to just be very illuminating and not something I had ever looked into. And, but when you walked me through it in the book, you just kind of left thing. Oh, okay. Yeah, that, that makes sense. And the alternative really isn't palatable. You would seem to need a motivation to say, okay, but Mark had to be saying one thing here and the other there. And it just the plain sense of it, if you read, you know, both canonically in regard to the other gospel writers, and then just throughout the whole book, which as an evangelical, like that, you're speaking our language, you know, mm -hmm. it's just, okay, that's the, that, that's the conclusion yeah. you're left with. Well, we're speaking Bible, we're not speaking tradition. Yes. And I found that very very helpful. And that kind of goes into another thing I had on this thing for you here is that, you know, as an outsider looking into it, perhaps before reading this book or looking into it much, it felt like the Marian dogmas and pretty much all of them were just entirely reliant upon tradition that the Bible doesn't say a whole lot, but you've got these dogmas that people came up with over time. And that's kind of just how it is that they're not in scripture, but people thought it up and then the Catholic church dogmatized it. But mm -hmm. however, it seems you guys really are trying to work at this from the reverse. And so if someone out there 
is saying, hey, I want to look into this for myself, other than reading your book, which they should definitely do at the link in the description. Um, if they're trying to make sense of the biblical arguments for the dogmas, what advice would you give them and where would you have them perhaps start with that? Well, I, I did, because you were kind enough to help us um, by uh, prepping us here, I did provide some passages that could be helpful. Uh, the, uh, the, basically, I, I, I put everything under the, um, the four dogmas, which are uh, three of the four are common to all Orthodox and Catholic Christians, and then the Immaculate Conception is as a, a, a dogma uh, uh, unique to um, Catholicism as being uh, uh, obligatory for its believers. So under those four headings, um, if we looked at the perpetual virginity, Luke one thirty four and Luke one thirty eight are really important passages, and those are the ones that take us back to Luke eleven. Uh, with something like Bible Gateway or whatever you're using, if you have several different translations, you may be fortunate enough to take your Luke translation and line it up perfectly with Luke one thirty four and Luke one thirty eight of Judges, without having to go to any Greek or to entertain any of our arguments. And you just have to ask yourself um, if there's even more parallels, because these are the most obvious. What what am I supposed to get out of this that Luke wants me to know where he's getting that from? And what am I supposed to get out of this story being related to the Annunciation? Why would he tell the story of the Annunciation through the eyes of Judges 11? And I'd be interested to see what alternative narratives you could come up with, if not the one that we came up with. Uh, the next one is on the title Mother of God, which is from the Council of, Cal uh, of uh, Ephesus in 431. Uh, I would look at Luke 1.42. This is a puzzling passage where uh, Elizabeth weirdly ignores the incarnate Jesus who's there. We're, I mean, clearly John the Baptist can make his presence known in utero. He can say, hey, I'm here. He jumps in the womb. And Elizabeth, under the influence of the Holy Spirit, seemingly ignores Jesus, and she says, how is it the mother of my Lord should come here? So we're led under the Holy Spirit to know that there's this uh, way of talking about Mary called mother of the Lord. And I think that the, the major point of reflection here is, who is Elizabeth's Lord? Who is Elizabeth's Lord? Uh, would we say that whoever her Lord is, is God or is not? Uh, can we separate God from her Lord? If we always find ourselves coming back to the same thing, that Elizabeth's Lord is the Lord God, uh, then we can see that the next step is quite natural, mother of God. Not mother of the Lord, but mother of God. So that, that would be the reflection passage uh, for this, the second Marian dogma. Uh, the third, which is the conception, the Immaculate Conception of Mary, um, we have really surprised ourselves. I did not expect to get into this at all in the book. Uh, Luke 1, verses 39 through 57. And the thing you want to concentrate on there is, can you make sense, if you have a good translation, which they're hard to come by, we were surprised how bad the translations are because of um, Reverend Dr. Brown and company being convinced that you can't read the past tense as a past tense. Uh, they all try to place it in the presence, present tense or in the perfect have eaten, have done instead of ate or did something a long time ago. Um, but if you have a, if you have the past tense used there for the second and the third verbs in Mary's hymn, 
what does it mean that God a long time ago did great things for her sake, for her, uh, and the other things that Mary says about what God did for her, how do you know when those were? What were those things? Uh, if Mary told you at you know, 12 years old that a long time ago, God did these great things for me, what are those things? Where do we get them? Uh, why does she refer to them like we should know? Or at least uh, she's under the inspiration of the Spirit to say them. Uh, what's the corollary? And, and the point here that we're making is the context of the discussion is things that happen in wombs. And so our inference is maybe she's talking about her in utero life. Maybe she's talking about her in utero life. And the last thing is the assumption, and this is the hardest one. Uh, maybe eventually William and I will come up with a project on the assumption because I, I have to, I, I'll tell you, this is the one, if you're going to say it's all tradition, this is, I think, the, your, your best bet to try to pin down um, what I call historical Christians as being way too much into tradition and way too little into Bible because it, the arguments are really typological. You have to argue first that Mary is the new ark, which I don't think is hard from our book, but just because she's new ark doesn't mean that she starts jetting up to heaven, uh, body and soul. Where do you get that from? And then uh, the next, the, the, the Old Testament passage, the chapter that's really important is 2 Samuel 6. Uh, Luke quotes 2 Samuel 6.10. But the, 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 ancient, the ancient fathers, when they first start talking about why Mary appropriately went up to heaven, uh, we see very early as uh, fifth century authors that they're, um, they're, they're referring to Psalm 132.8. Uh, Arise, O Lord, into the heavens, which is Christological prophecy. You and the ark of your strength. Oh, is there a second one that rises into the heavens? So, but you can see how typological that is. But if we accept the premise that the Lord needs to rise into the heavens, now we have to come up with an exegetical way to talk about what does it mean that the ark, if we're going to exclude Mary, what are we going to make the ark? And, you know, we could do anything with that. Uh, I have some ideas if I were a very convicted uh, non-Catholic uh, or non-Orthodox where I would go with that. I'm not going to share the secret. But, um, but I, th I think there are some exegetical strategies you can use. Um, but I think that the, the patristic literature in Jerusalem uh, saw that the best strategy here to use is that Mary, body, and soul goes to heaven. And that's all compared with Luke 1, 43. Thank you so much for that. I really appreciate you taking the time to go through all of that. Uh, William, anything you want to add on that? Yeah, definitely. Um, uh, for people that are wondering, we, we, we definitely, we've talked about it in the future, we probably will definitely get a second edition out on that Mary book. Well, we probably will add to that particular issue of the Assumption of Mary. And I know that when dialoguing with Father, uh, we've talked about it, and there's definitely a lot of really incredible stuff in his mind when it comes to that. But <clears throat> I, I, to add one point to, to that, um, the Book of Psalms, when I've looked at the early fathers and their interpretation, I find that a number of them indeed do make that connection of Mary, finding Mary in there. We can find John Damascene as well, uh, making that uh, very early connection and noting that others made that connection as well. So that I would add that point. I thought Father was incredibly masterful in the way he um, connected through Scripture how we believe in these Mariological teachings, I completely agree with him. Uh, and I think that the one thing that I would add to that is each time ch church gathered, 
in council or when a dogmatic decree was laid down, the majority of the time was to attempt to squash a heresy, was not to create a dogma or to create something out of thin air. Indeed, even for the, the teaching of the Immaculate Conception, uh, theologians were were dialogued with, the Pope dialogued with theologians, looked into the early church, looked at ancient interpretations, recognized that this had been a festival that had been celebrated from the ancient of times, and recognized that it was appropriate to make this a dogmatic teaching. So I would add that one point, that never in time has the church ever gathered and made something a teaching that was not believed by the faithful in a massive way um, in the early church. Yeah, well, thank you so much for that. I appreciate the background on that. And I appreciate the transparency. And another thing I enjoyed about your book was that you guys allowed dissenting voices to speak and then engage with them. You brought up his name several times, the uh, Reverend Dr. Brown, and how you worked with him on a couple points. And I appreciate you, Father Kappas, saying, hey, you know, if I was going to critique this as this is all just tradition, this is the dogma I would pick, but you do have still reasons for believing that. And I think that just shows a certain academic honesty that I really appreciate in people, and I've enjoyed seeing that in you guys. You know, as we begin to wrap up, I do want to point out one other thing that I've really enjoyed about you two, and this was this really came out when I first heard you guys talk about your book on my good friend Keith Little's podcast, The Cordial Catholic, and I texted him after I listened to the episode and just had a lot of nice things to say about it. I said, you know, one of my favorite things about this episode, it reminds me of the favorite uh, compliment I've ever heard someone give a theologian. And it was, uh, oh, what was his name? Michael Reeves. Dr. Michael Reeves was coming to speak at Moody and he was kind of our keynote speaker. And one of my dearest professors introduced him and he said, what I love about Michael Reeves most is that he does theology like a seven-year-old on Christmas morning. That is the kind of excitement that he brings to this. And I really saw that in you guys, the way you guys talked about this. There was just this love for what you're doing and an excitement, which I think theology is due, and that's the most natural way theology should be done, but unfortunately often does not come out that way. So I wanted to commend you guys for that. And in light of that, I just kind of wanted to close with, you guys mentioned that you're not necessarily finding new things. You're not trying to you know, create new doctrines here or anything. But you did have this joy of rediscovering and systematizing these patristic typological insights. What for each of you was perhaps maybe the most exciting thing you came across in this research that you thought, man, this this is just great. I can't wait to share this with people. Go ahead, Ray. Yeah, let me, uh, I'll, I'll go ahead and uh, I'll say my end. I'd like, like Father to get uh, the, the last word. Um, what I really, and, and I agree with you there, Austin, um, there is nothing that is being invented anew here. Rather, what is being rediscovered, as you will, if you will, are perhaps teachings that maybe, maybe got lost over time. I think that when we got to the time of the Reformation, Austin, the Church kind of went on the defensive, if you will, afterwards, rather than really. Uh, and, and we don't mean that for every single writing. We recognize there are a lot of fantastic books out there. But we recognize in the field of Mariology uh, in this particular area, because we recognize there's some great spiritual books out there, that the church, uh, her her great apologists, her great writers, were really kind of writing books being on the defensive rather than 
putting a, a book out that allowed Holy Writ to really kind of, as I said earlier, give us the picture of Mary from the text itself. The one thing that I was blown away by as we dug deeper and dug deeper was how not only how biblical the approach is, but how it was also the approach that the fathers used. Because you you would encounter an Athanasius or an Augustine or an Ambrose, and you would recognize them making the very same connections rather than me dialoguing with Austin and, and then you you telling me, well, William, uh, what about Luke 1? And then I try and tell you, well, you know what, Austin, I, I don't care what you think. Uh, look at what Athanasius says. Well, Athanasius wouldn't have said, well, look at what uh, Ignatius says. He would have pointed to the early fathers that preceded him, no doubt, but he would have done that by supplementing it with Holy Writ. And, and I think to me, when I notice a lot, when I looked at this text and realized, hey, uh, the answers are right there in Holy Writ, I think that kind of a principle not only excited me then, but I'm still like a little kid waking up every morning on Christmas Day. And, um, because, uh, as you know very well, uh, uh, we just had our newest book come out on transubstantiation. Um, and we have more more stuff that we're working on. Each time we get to work on anything, um, anything, we're just filled with a love, love that comes really our love for the Lord, our love for our triune God, our love of the Word of God. And I think to me, that is the most exciting thing that discovering, remember, we're not reinventing the wheel, but looking and discovering the way the very first Christians would have read scripture, a methodology that maybe might have been forgotten over time and finding passages that maybe don't get utilized as often or kind of maybe brushed aside has been really, really fun in a very spiritually uplifting kind of way. I love that. And Father Kappas. Um, Well, thanks for your uh, little um, vignette. Um, I try to speak like a seven-year-old too. Um, when I was um, studying Latin under Reginald Foster, who just recently died, God rest him, and he's a um, great Latinist, uh, colorful figure. Uh, but... Uh, he used to, I think scream would be the right word, scream at us uh, in his humorous way uh, that we were not allowed to use in our translations highfalutin Latinate-based or Greco-based language. We had to use nice meat and potatoes German words. So I, I try to, as much as I can, uh, stay in that seven-year-old, you know, meat and potato Germanic uh, lingo as, as much as I can. Uh, and that having said, I'll transition to the to the uh, question, which is uh, the perpetual virginity passage. Um, I was blown away by it. Uh, I never texted really anybody because I was too busy living in other countries my whole life. Uh, William got me into this vice called texting. I'm probably now uh, slightly addicted to it because we keep throwing uh, discoveries back and forth to each other. This is I mean, I don't think that scholars, the texting was invented for scholarly dialogue, but that's what my addiction now is based off of with him. And it's just kind of throwing stuff back and forth each other. And we hit that perpetual virginity passage and confirmed it and saw that even some fathers uh, uh, saw it. 
uh, we were just elated. I can just remember how happy we were um, because uh, all this stuff was, was we didn't know what we were going to find. And so that was really the happiest moment for me uh, in, in all the book. Even though there were some really other great discoveries, that one really sealed the deal uh, because I had heard, especially as I was studying this, how much criticism there was against Luke 134 being the perpetual virginity vow because it was called the psychological argument of St. Gregory Nyssa, where he uh, allegedly just says, well, Mary, you know, how would she know how to have a baby, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, that, that, that it was psychologized. And in fact, that there's a, a deep tradition known to the patristic literature and justified in uh, typological exegesis by Luke himself, which shows that, you know, sometimes we scholars have something to learn. It's not just the fathers who could learn from us, as our, our presumptions are oftentimes are in scholarly literature. Very wow. well said. Well, thank you guys so much for sharing those. And thank you for the work that you put in on this book. And thank you for coming on the channel today. I'd like to just allow you all to have the last word and let people know, I'm sure. And in, in looking at this and listening through this, they're like, man, I, I want to learn more. How, how do I keep up with what these guys are doing or read more of their books or find more of their talks? Where, where can they find more from you, too? Yeah, let me go ahead and I'll begin and get Father the, the last word. Well, number one, I'd, people can go to my webpage, uh, www.patristicpillars.com or even www.earlychurchfathers.com. It'll take you to the exact page. And you can find out everything that I'm working on as well as working on with Father Kopp as we, God willing, the Lord will allow us to, to produce much more material for people to be really fed in an incredibly spiritual kind of manner. Right now, people can go go to Amazon and they can look up the book that uh, just dropped, um, I think maybe 24 hours ago. Um, it is on transubstantiation, the secret history of transubstantiation, pulling back the veil on the Eucharist. You can find it via Kindle or via paperback format. I know a lot of people have told both Father Coppice and myself, hey, uh, we like Kindle, but we want to hold the book. We want to be able to carry the book around um, on a non on a device that we don't have to charge. And you can find that via paper book as well, paperback as well. Uh, everything that I'm doing in, in terms of debates, you can find information there on the webpage. Uh, you can look me up on Twitter with my name, or you can look me up on Facebook. You can find out information that I'm doing there, projects that I'm working on. And as Father pointed out, I'm glad that we're going to be able to get that debate done again. It was uh, it will be done this upcoming Saturday. I was looking forward to today, forward to it today, but. Unfortunately, got um, got delayed. But yeah, people can look up everything that I'm doing there. Uh, and, and you know what? I have had a, an incredible time being on. I've really enjoyed the incredible dialogue with you. And I'm glad to be able to call you a brother. Well, thank you so much for being here. And, and the pleasure is all mine as well. Father Kappas. Uh Yeah, uh, I am at an Eastern Catholic seminary. And uh, we're at www dot bcs dot edu uh b as in boy cs dot edu uh and we offer a master's in uh, an accredited master's in theology so i welcome anyone who is thinking about uh, a very non-expensive master's um since uh we are very fortunate that um many of our people are service oriented we're able to have a very affordable master's uh program to to consider maybe joining us and then the, the second uh, site is if you're interested, interested in more academic articles that have been published in peer review publications, uh, mainly on 
um, the interaction between Greek and Latin Christianity during different ages of the church, even some first century stuff, uh, but mainly uh, the Middle Ages. You can go to academia.edu and just type my name and uh, you'll be able to find my materials there. Other than that, uh, I really appreciate you thinking of us and, and bringing us on. Uh, I get more excited about sharing it with uh, Christians who don't have necessarily a denominational affiliation because, again, the book was not targeted uh, to a specific denomination. So I'm so excited that it's being received in exactly the way that it was written. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure of mine. And thank you both so much for being on the show. And thanks to everyone that is watching this, whenever this is that you're watching it. Uh, None of us take that lightly. So thank you so much for your time. I hope that you've enjoyed it. Be sure to check out their book. And until next time, be on the lookout for more videos. And as always, go out and love God and love others because truly, above all else, that will change the world. Thank you.